I feel like there's going to be kind of a reckoning within my family when this comes out. Like, I'm actually a little bit nervous about it because I'm going to send it to them. And I don't know what that will mean for my relationships with them. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough and when we do, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Now, if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. You can check the show notes to learn more about all kinds of things, including our membership. We'd love to have you on board with that. It really does help support the cause of not only having more conversations and better conversations, but hopefully helping more people in more places feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. Now, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, and we don't hold back, so take that into account before you listen or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Michelle. Michelle lives in Japan, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Talking to uh, Michelle in, I was like the surprise, but because I put the name of the place in the title, they'll know you're not Japanese, but you are in Japan. That's correct. I don't think you're Japanese. No, not quite. The listening audience, if they pay very close attention and maybe listen to the one or two episodes that came up, we'll know that I lived in Japan back in the day teaching English. Not that far from where you are. Can we tell everyone where you are? Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm in uh, Yokohama. Lots mm-hmm. of books behind you? Yeah, well, books and ga- actually mostly games. I collect the uh, old computers and old games and stuff from Japan. Oh. It's kind of one of my hobbies. Where are you from the States? I'm from North Carolina. What town? Winston-Salem. All right. So that's about an hour from me. Yeah. You're probably in like the Raleigh area, I'm guessing. Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill. Okay. We'll talk a little about Japan and North Carolina and all kinds of other shit. But the main thing we're talking about is the S word. Big broad question. Then um, what's your experience with suicide? I've had at least two like attempts, which Mm -hmm. is a word that I'm realizing is a lot more vague than I ever thought it was. Um, until, you know, listening to the podcast, it really kind of opened up my concept of what that means. Huh. So at the very least that I can recall, there's been two that I would call attempts mm-hmm. and then a whole lot of near getting there attempts. What I call the space between. Mm. Michelle from North Carolina in Yokohama, Japan. How did you stumble upon a podcast with the name Suicide in it? The usual way, which is go into a podcast app and type in the word suicide because you're thinking about it a lot and want to see if there's anything interesting. How old are you, may I ask? I'm 40. Mazel tov. I would have guessed younger. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Do you remember, and our memories are not always accurate, but I believe yours for this kind of thing is probably pretty accurate. Do you remember the first time you thought about this in a way that was beyond philosophical, but is actually personal? 
in, in my mind, there's kind of two points with this. There's the first time I ever tried to like hurt myself. And then there's the first time I ever thought about actual ending myself. So the first time I ever tried to like hurt myself was around seven or eight years old. I was in the school's gym and I don't know if you know how they used to have like these mats along the wall to like protect you from slamming into the wall when you're playing sure. basketball or something. We were playing, I think, I don't know, kickball or something. I did something wrong. I think I, I threw a ball at someone because I was angry or something. And the teacher yelled at me. I don't know what it was about the way the teacher yelled at me, but it just filled me with this instant feeling of I'm worthless and I fuck everything up. I don't know. I just turned around and was like, I'm so useless. And I just started beating my head into one of those mats, like kind of hard. The teacher ran over and like grabbed me and was like, stop that. Why are you doing that? Like, it's okay. Calm down. And I was like, but I did this thing. I messed up and it's my fault and I feel bad and I'm sorry. And the teacher was kind of like, well, don't, don't do that. You know, there's a, there's a long history of teachers who saw behavior that probably should have been big red flags that they as far as i know didn't say anything about to clarify i went to a small private christian school in north carolina fundamental baptist because the southern baptists were too liberal for them and i went there from kindergarten through the 12th grade 200 people in the school total cohort throughout yes so you literally met some of these people when you were five and didn't have any friends how's that you didn't make friends. No. Well, I tried, but I was different, really different. And they couldn't understand that. How so? So I'm I'm transgender. There was a lot of little things that when I'm looking back that I think other people could notice that I really couldn't, that I didn't have like terminology or ideas around. But I did stuff that probably made people really confused. And I was always kind of like a fantasy, you know, in my head kind of kid too, where everyone else was, you know, a lot more sports and, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was, uh, I just didn't really fit in. I didn't really fit the mold at all. I tried. When did you realize I, I don't know if the word is realized you were trans the first time i can recall actually like playing as a girl was about six years old before the self-harm before the self-harm yeah Got it. i was again on the playground at the school and we were playing star trek the next generation all the other kids chose what characters they were going to play and i was always kind of the the more quiet one that you know didn't usually get to like be the first choice because everyone else would just kind of push me out of the way. So they took all the other characters. And I was like, well, there's only a few characters left. Oh, you know what? I'll be the doctor because she's cool. I saw absolutely no problem with that. Like that seemed like a, just a totally normal thing to me. Like, why wouldn't I be the doctor? She has red hair and she's she's cool. And all the boys started laughing at me and were like, you're a girl. You're going to be a girl character. And I was like, um, what's wrong with that? And what I learned from that day was that expressing anything about feeling like a girl or being a girl or like pretending girl stuff was going to get me hurt. From that point on, I kind of kept all those things secret. I would still play as a girl on the playground, but by myself somewhere where no one was around, you know, role played girl characters and things from books and stuff that I was reading and games that I was playing. Boys say whatever they are languages you're a girl you're acting like a girl why do you want to be a girl mm. what did the girls say they didn't say much usually the girls were just kind of like huh they were a little bit confused <laughs> they kind of left me on my own so was it fifth grade when you was that the time you started thinking about death like suicide death 
suicide deaths came a little bit later. It came when my stepmom came into my life. My parents um, divorced when I was two years old. Okay. And my mom, oh, she's going to hate me, but I don't care. She decided that she didn't want to be married anymore because it was kind of like boring. My dad was kind of controlling and didn't let her go out and do things. Sounds kind of boring. Yeah. She's like 21 and she has a baby and she's locked in the house all day. Or not locked in the house all day, but, you know, stuck at home all day. You know, it's like 1983 at this point, I guess, Mm -hmm. because I'm born in 82. She's just kind of like, I can't deal with this anymore. And so she decides to just leave. They file for a divorce. And this is kind of the start of a lot of things in my life, because I feel like I think from this point on, whether they realized it or not, I became kind of a scapegoat for a lot of their problems. Never good. Like about a year or so into being away, not long after they split up, my mom met a guy that she knew in high school and he swept her off her feet and he was in the Air Force. Yeah. Maybe because of a guy, maybe because whatever. I don't like him. Good instincts. Yeah. Um. He was in the Air Force. So she went off to Hawaii. Schwarzenegger look like he was dishonorably discharged from the Air Force. My mom decided that was a good enough reason to stay with him. Quick, just quick question. Is your mom alive? Yes. Is she still married to that man? No. How long? I guess about five or six years. I think he left when I was about 10. Formidable years for you, for sure. Five to 10. Come on. Yeah. So my dad got remarried when I was 12. So this guy was gone for about two years. And then my dad got remarried. Your parents get divorced when you're very young and they both get remarried. And the person that we're referencing here, when I asked you about sort of when you first started thinking about suicide, wasn't the buff guy who was married no. to your mom. It was the woman who was married to your biological father. Yes, because with my stepdad, I didn't see him all that much because our custody situation was that I went with my dad on the weekdays and my mom on the weekends. So he wasn't really around to like have a big influence on me in that way, even though he probably did on some level. So you're going back and forth. You're spending more time with your dad and stepmom. Yeah. And my dad was always very quiet and extremely hard worker. All he valued was work and money and like being able to financially provide. And that was really about all he valued. He didn't understand games. He didn't understand, you know, fantasy type things. You know, he understood sports. And I was not a sports kid at all. So we didn't really, you know, after the first few years, you know, five, six years old, he just kind of gave up. Mm -hmm. And so I was a TV kid, you know, on my own while he was working late at night. He could work at his office and at home. He would be, you know, working all day and then come home and work all night. I don't know when he ever slept. So when my stepmom came in, she kind of like had this idea that she was going to fix this. That she was going to like make us be close at that point at like at like 12 years old like that ship had kind of sailed in my mind like it was just a little too late to really like build that level with a guy who still you know hadn't changed like only new sports and was always kind of like mean to me honestly like there were times when i would go out to play and i would get hurt and i would come home bleeding and he would spank me for playing with a kid who hurt me so that was kind of like my perception of him was very like too stern in a lot of situations, too Mm -hmm. quick to blame me for everything. And so when my stepmom came in, 
she kind of like puts this pressure down by trying to like fix this relationship and try and force us to be together. When she quickly saw that it wasn't working, she started being extremely verbally abusive to me. She would tell me ridiculous stuff. Like she told me that I treated my dad worse than worm dirt. Worm Worm dirt in in her explanation is dirt that worms have crawled through, chewed up, chewed up and like pooped out. That's how I treated my dad in her mind. Are they still married? Yes. The dynamic here, though, is that she would go into these verbal abuse and she would like get into an argument over nothing really easily. Just like flip. Are you calling me a liar? And explode. Then my dad would come home from work and she would just be crying and tell him all this stuff that I supposedly did because I was horrible. And then he would beat me. I want to be very clear that this wasn't anything that left any marks. I wasn't getting punched or kicked. And some people think that's all that abuse is. But this was other types of physical abuse. Things like, you know, getting pulled out of a chair and across a room by your ear, getting slammed into walls, getting thrown into furniture, getting choked, things like that. And that were very abusive, you know, getting yelled at directly in your face, less than an inch away from your face, that were extremely traumatic, but the average person wouldn't say, oh, that's abuse. How old are you when you first try to end your life? 13, 14, no, probably like 14. All right. So this is around that time that you've been describing. Can you share kind of what leads you up to that? What's going on in your mind and or heart that leads you to a place where you're like, I'm going to check out and you try. Well, basically, it's just that this this abuse keeps getting worse Mm -hmm. and I keep getting more and more hurt. Like it starts out where I'm getting spanked really hard and it gets Mm -hmm. harder and harder. And Mm. I start getting, you know, thrown into objects, thrown into furniture, thrown against walls and things like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I start thinking like, I don't need to be dealing with this anymore. It's just too much. So the first thing I ever tried was I started trying to suffocate myself with like pillows and stuff. And there's obviously this gender stuff that I don't really understand that's going on as well. But I wasn't really focused on that at the the time. I was more focused on, you know, just just the the day in, day out kind of abusive things. And the hardest part was that I had no one to talk to. I had no friends. I had nobody. When I would find people to reach out to. In my head, what I started to realize was that I just can't talk to anybody because every time I talk to someone, I get hurt. So I stopped. And so around 15 or 16, things got really bad. And there was a point where my mom was forcing me to tell her stuff that was going on. She could see that something visibly had changed. I would come over on a Friday afternoon and I would just like, my face would be all not right or whatever. And my expression would be, you know, blank. And I would be quiet. That was not normal. She would ask me and I would didn't want to tell her. And she would be like, no, you got really have to tell me. And so I started telling her. And then of course she calls my dad and then I come home on Sunday and I get beat. So a couple of weeks later, same thing. I'm like begging her, please, please. I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to get hurt. If I talk about it and you talk to them, I'm going to get hurt again. Please. I don't want to talk about it for my safety. I don't want to talk about it. She locked me in our car in a parking lot of our apartment building and said, you're not leaving until you tell me. Literally sat in there for 30 minutes trying to just like avoid telling her so I could get out. She wouldn't budge. And so finally I broke down and I told her and well, you can imagine what happened. 
I'm just getting a sense, and I imagine people hearing this get a sense of like, things are really fucking hard. At 13, when you're doing the pillow, are you thinking about another method? Yeah. So the pillow was the first thing I tried, and I kept doing that and realizing fairly quickly that this is not going to work. I did kind of keep trying it, though, just because it felt good to try. And I remember lying in bed, like praying to God, because this is Christian 12-year-old kid who thinks God's going to do something about this situation. I remember just keep sitting in bed saying, God, please kill me. Just let me go to sleep and kill me. I don't want to wake up. I didn't ask God to like fix the situation. I just asked God to kill me. That was kind of the narrative up until 15 when I finally found a potential method. I had to have dental surgery really badly. And so they gave me some pretty powerful pain medication. So they would have given me like a 30-day supply. And so I estimated that I took maybe three or four of them and I had just left them. I hadn't thrown them away. And so this was probably four or five weeks later, a month to, I don't know how long later, they were still there. Mm -hmm. I had it sitting on my dresser in my room. I had a bottle of allergy medication as well. You know, I didn't know anything about medications. I just knew that they were there and that maybe if I mixed them together, they might interact. I had no idea, but I I figured it's worth a try. And I just was like, I can't do this anymore. God's not killing me. And the pillow is not killing me. And I don't want to jump off the roof of my house. But I actually considered that many times. Then I realized it was not high enough. So I see these pills and I'm like, there's probably like 26 pills in this bottle. And that might do it. Maybe if I mix in these allergy pills too, you know, I'll get really, really sick and I'll die. I grab both bottles and I go and I lock myself in the bathroom. It had always been kind of my sanctuary, my safe place. That was where I would go when I was really hurting because my my bedroom wasn't safe. So I go in there, lock the door, and I'm sitting there and I can still see it just like perfectly in my mind. I'm sitting there with these two bottles of pills and I'm like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm I'm really going to do this, but I can I can feel myself being a bit scared, you know. What I was scared about was, I don't know what's going to happen. I know what I've been taught. I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven and all that kind of thing. But I don't really, you know, I don't really know. Like, I'm scared of if God's going to hate me, if Jesus is going to hate me for doing this. But I want out. I just really want out. I open up the pills and I'm about to put them in my mouth. And something in my head just snaps and I hear this voice in my head. I'm not even sure if it was really even my voice or some sort of dislocated voice. At the time, I thought it was, you know, Jesus or something. The voice said that the Catholics tell you that if you kill yourself, you will go to hell. And maybe you should not do this just in case they're right. When that thought popped into my head, I have the pills open in my hand, like ready to ready to kill myself. Now knowing what those pills are, I have no doubt that I would have died. They would have stopped my heart, almost guaranteed. That voice, I just, I just like, I can't risk that. I can't risk going to hell. Uh And that was literally the only thing that changed it. So I felt like, okay, Jesus wants me to throw these in the toilet. And I instantly just without thinking, I just threw them in the toilet and flushed it. Walked back to my room like nothing had happened. 15. Yeah. That must be a weird space to be in. I mean, Mm. wanted to do it if not for this voice, whatever it was exactly, uh, you'd probably be gone. So like 25 or so years later, do you try again in that time? I, I wouldn't say that I really attempted after that, at least as long as I was like in that home. I didn't really have any method that would work. I just didn't have an access to a way to do it. At 15, you flush it down the toilet, but how you feel about yourself, 
gender, friendship, family, like mm. nothing radically changed because you didn't end your life. You're waking up, same shit. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was wake up, same shit. Um, you're absolutely right. And back to the whole thing about getting hurt whenever I talked about this stuff, there was a girl in my class that I was talking to in notes about these things, and I told her about this in a note. She took it home in her backpack, and her mom, who worked at the school, found it and took it to the principal. So, all this ridiculous shit happened. The principal, like, pulled me out of class and took me to McDonald's and tried to tell me, like, you know, in front of a Big Mac, how Jesus loves me and doesn't want me to kill myself, which just made me feel absolutely horrible because, I mean, who does that? And so we had to have these conversations with my dad and my mom, you know, separately. Not Neither of them helped. My mom locks me in the car again. Well, she didn't lock me in the car, but she had a car conversation <laughs> on the way home about this where she's crying and she's telling me, like, I just can't lose you. Like, I don't know, you know what to tell you. Like, I know this stuff's going on. I know it's hard, but you got to keep going because you're all I've got and I can't lose you. And she says, I'll never forget this. She says, if you killed yourself, I think I just might have to just kill myself too. Cause I couldn't stand to live on earth anymore without you. You think she's right? You think she would have done it? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And my dad mm -hmm. also did the car thing, but his version of it was, I don't understand any of this. I know you feel depressed or whatever, but I don't understand depression. I don't know what this means. I don't really believe in any of this psychology stuff. I just don't want you to hurt yourself. And this is the thing that really struck me was like, but I don't know why you would be feeling this way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, because you're fucking beating me. Right. I think it should be pretty obvious why I'm feeling this way. I'm getting yelled yeah. at constantly and thrown around and beaten, but he didn't, he couldn't see that. When you say something like, I don't know why you're feeling this way, it always makes me think, and I'm, I guess I'm simplifying things a little bit, but not that much where it's like, well, ask them. Right. So I don't know why you're feeling this way. Pause. Hey, why are you feeling this way? You got to really mean it. And then don't say a fucking word. Absolutely. So I know you go to college at App State. I actually went to Montreat College up near Asheville area that point very early on is when i figured out that i was transgender because i had the internet and i could actually like research stuff and i found oh, these yeah. words to explain things like 16 17 i already started exploring like lesbianism and stuff like that and connecting with that after that I, I came out to people some people around me and my roommate ended up leaving my roommate and this guy who didn't know me very well but didn't like me obviously maybe because i was trans or because i was weird or just whatever they get really really drunk one night and they go to my dorm room because my old roommate told him which room it was and he puts a like a like a toboggan like a ski mask kind of thing over his face and knocks on my door at about one o'clock in the morning i'm studying for a test the next day mm -hmm. and i open the door being naive not checking he just sucker punches me in the face and runs off he's really really drunk and his his like toboggan mask thing is like halfway on so i could tell who he was he was actually in the class that i had a test for the next day that is a felony you and, go to uh, jail for that and sometimes for a while he didn't go to jail i i didn't report it it would have caused me to have to tell my parents some things that I felt ashamed about, which weren't anything that I should have been ashamed about, but it was just like, it would have outed me in some ways that I didn't yeah. want to do. That speaks to, I am sure many a trans persons and not just trans, but challenges, which are, why didn't you just do that? Why, well, see what happens when I do that. And then this happens, my life gets worse. That's why I didn't yeah. fucking do it. Right. After like, 
total of two years, like I got so depressed from all of that, that I was like, this is where I have the next series of almost attempts. Okay. Stuff like thinking about like cutting myself, trying to like do the whole, you know, arm in the bathtub thing. I was fantasizing. I was writing stories about people killing themselves, you know, writing fiction, like surrounding myself with any kind of media involving suicide that I could come up with or, or, or emptiness or sadness or gender dysphoria or sexuality. Like it was all just kind of this one big bulbous thing kind of surrounding my head as I walked around on that campus. Basically, I ended up having to leave that college. My dad never found out why I had to leave that college other than he just thought that I didn't want to do my schoolwork because I was lazy. And so he blamed me for it, has basically cut me off financially ever since. So when I went to Appalachian State, that was all on me. That was all me. That was me trying to go back to college to get a degree so that I could move on. And that Mm -hmm. was years later. And it was all on student loans because he wouldn't help me. You've already messed up and you're done. Figure it out yourself. And you did. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> sort of. When do you start to change your presentation to the world? That started um, when I went to Appalachian State. Hmm. I, I started out with a community college. I went there for like two years, met some great friends, then moved up to Appalachian <laughs> State when I graduated. So I was in a, a group of people that I, that I knew well enough to feel supported. Mm-hmm. And they had a counseling center uh, there that was free that was really well staffed mm. and it happened that they had a specialist she had like a, a a phd in gender therapy stuff like she was just like the absolute perfect person yeah and she was running a trans support group and when i found out about it I joined immediately. And so around 2000, like late 2010 is when I started presenting and came out to everybody. I I came out to my mom. I tell people that I've come out to my mom four times and it's taken four times for her to even like begin to halfway accept that I'm actually, you know, am this. What about your dad? My dad uh, told me that I was no longer a part of their family and that they didn't want to, they didn't want to see me anymore. I've seen him once. I saw him once a year ago. Um, and that was really not good. But other than that, like I had talked to him on the phone twice in 12 years. That was the only contact I'd had. 2013, you finish App State. Yeah. But you've been in Japan for eight or nine years? Nine years, yeah. Why did you first go there? I had planned. I had always wanted to go to Japan. And I had actually planned this whole go back to school and get a degree thing around going to Japan. Wow. What I found out was that if you want to teach English, you basically just have to have a degree in something. So I decided, well, if it doesn't matter what I'm going to get a degree in, I'm going to get a degree in something I like, which was theater. That was uh, a bit of a mistake on my part. What I should have at least done was gotten theater education so I could have like a teaching certification. But oh, well, I had like made a step by step plan of like what I was going to do. I was going to do the community college so that I would be able to prove that I was ready for real college because you have to do that if you've ever like been forced out of a school. So I did that. And then it was go to Appalachian State and get the degree and then apply for this jet program where you oh, yeah English. yeah sure yeah 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 and then do that and somehow i managed to make all of those things happen i almost didn't and that's where some more attempts start to come in i almost failed two classes near the end of my college career due to mental health issues and and um a teacher with a really really fucked up hardcore strict um attendance policy so 
So I was going to the that mental health center and I was telling them, like, I really am going to kill myself. In the last year, um, near the last semester that I was there, I started seeing a different person in the counseling center for personal issues, like separate from the, the trans group to deal with like depression and things like that. And she gave me some medicines to try. I've been on medications a few times, but basically like I was in there. I remember there was this one day, like two weeks or something like that before the end of the semester. And I didn't think I was going to be able to graduate. And I knew if I didn't graduate, like I was not going to be able to like get the loan to come back and redo the classes or whatever. Like it was just not going to happen. Like this was my chance. And so I was in there just, I'm struggling. You know, I've been on estrogen for like six months at this point. So my mood is all over the place. You know, I'm a little bit isolated at this point, not super isolated. There was people around me, but I was closing off a little bit. I was afraid that I was going to fail. And so I was sitting there saying like, if I fail, my future is done. My whole plan is done. I have nothing else that I can do. I won't be able to get a job. I have put all of my eggs in one basket here. And if I fail, I have nothing left but to kill myself. And I think I've already failed. So I need to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, we're going to have to send you to a hospital. I don't want to go to a hospital. And they're like, well, if you're in here and you're telling us that you're going to kill yourself, we can't let you leave. Yeah. We're going to have to send you to a hospital or you can tell us that you're not going to kill yourself. And I'm like, (laughs) sorry, sorry. Yeah. I mean, their hands are tied to some degree. I get it. Totally. It's funny because I actually, I was like, yeah, but I want to kill myself. Well, we can't let you leave. You either have to go to the hospital or tell us you're not going to kill yourself. And I'm like, I don't think I can do either of those. Why can't there be another alternative? Right. Unless you're rich, that doesn't exist. And I'd heard the horror stories. I knew that like getting locked up would end everything for me. I asked them to give me like five minutes and I just sit there for like five minutes and try my best to calm myself down. And then five minutes later, they come back and they're like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to be okay. And I'm not going to kill myself. Of course, the reality was, is like, I was, that's like total bullshit lie. And I'm sure they knew it, but. Uh, Everybody's playing the game at that point. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And so they're like, all right, if you think you're okay, you know, you clearly calmly stated that you think you're all right. So we're going to let you go. And so I just left. I didn't get any help, but I left. Well, you didn't kill yourself. Did you try again? No. It was one of those things where it was like, you know, living up in the mountains, I was a delivery driver. So it was like, I would be delivering to these crazy middle of nowhere ass roads that are like gravel on the side of a cliff. And I would just be sitting like, you know what? I can drive right off this and it'll be over. And so that was like one of the things that was going through my head a lot was like, it was actually probably really easy, probably really painful, but really easy to end myself up there. And I was like planning out methods, pulled it together. I did some, I did two absolutely amazing final projects for both of the classes that earned me the extra credit that I needed to, to, to pass both. Get into the jet program. Yep. What a part of Japan. Okay. So I went to Shizuoka. I was basically in a town that was like five miles from the base of Mount Fuji. Um, I could look outside my window and see Mount Fuji every day. It was just gorgeous. And for that five years that I was on jets, because I was on for the whole five years, you're allowed to be. My mental health was just like instantly better. So I, I wasn't taking hormones at the time because I couldn't 
get access to them as easily as I could in America. And I was kind of in the country, so it was a little bit harder. But I actually gave my interview, actually explained in my in my application that I was transgender and that I would be out while I was there, which was a hardcore risk. I don't know how I got the the quote unquote balls to do this. I actually presented full female business skirt, hose, everything when I went and did my interview in in Atlanta hmm. um, at the uh, at the embassy. And uh, they asked me a few questions like, you know, what would you do if a student, you know, asked you blah, blah, blah about your gender, whatever. And I, I did great. I'm always really good at interviews. So I got in. I mean, it was a little bit difficult because they, they couldn't find a place for me for a little while, but I got in. When I got to Japan, three big changes were before long, I found friends. So I wasn't extremely isolated. I had money. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was getting a decent salary, not a huge salary, but a decent one um, and really low rent. And I was out in my workplace and was generally, aside from a few minor problems at the beginning, I was totally accepted. Enough money to live, friendships and some acceptance. Yes. That is enough to take somebody who's strongly contemplating suicide to maybe not contemplating suicide. Not at all. Not at all for five years. That's your thing. Doesn't mean it's going to apply to everyone. Of course not. But that should be something we think more about. You weren't making a ton of money. You didn't have a ton of friends. And I don't think uh, everybody in that town was necessarily celebrating the fact that you were trans, but there was enough acceptance. There was enough money and a few people that were like, hey, let's hang out. Let's go to karaoke, get some dinner. Wow. And that goes for five fucking years. So that goes into like, what are we at? Like 2000, almost into lockdown. It ended August, 2019. And that's when I moved to Yokohama. Right before that is when I went, met my ex. You're, is your ex Japanese? Uh, no, she's Thai. What was she doing yeah. there? Or were you traveling? No, she was, uh, she was living here working. What's the connection to this and the larger Michelle slash, let's call it suicide stuff. I don't know if she's ever going to hear this. And if she does, she's not going to believe anything that I say. So whatever. So she's the one that I will absolutely diagnose as just narcissist. Very abusive. Mm. Really quickly. Like started with the love bombing thing. You know, just like, oh my gosh, I love you so much. We're going to get married. We're going to have kids. And she was like really focused on kids. She wanted to have like seven kids. And I was like, I can't have seven kids. Like, I don't know. Maybe I could have like two but I wasn't sure if I could even have kids at all because I had taken hormones for a while. Five years, I had stopped. So it's kind of like, eh, maybe, you know, you don't know. You know, I'm in a new city. All of my friends have left. I have like one friend left because they've all like left or moved away or whatever. And I meet this person because I'm kind of lonely. And I feel like I literally remember thinking that like, if this doesn't work out, you know, I'm going to be turning 40 soon. Nobody's ever going to, nobody else is ever going to want to date me. I'm going to be alone forever if this doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. And she seemed really hyper-focused and really interested in me at first. I mean, she was talking about getting married within the first month. If we all had the benefit of hindsight, right? I mean, shit. Yeah. Right. So after the love bomb phase, things got very, started getting more and more abusive. Anytime I wasn't making her feel amazing, she Mm -hmm. would start being really, really negative to try and see whether or not I would try to uplift her. She was always trying to force me to prove that I love her by saying stuff that she knew would hurt me. 
this isn't working out. I'm going to leave. I'm going to just, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to disappear off to Thailand. You'll never see me again for no reason at all. Other than to yeah. just watch me be like, no, I love you. Don't leave. And it's like, I think that was like her, like kind of feel the waters of, of like how well she could control me. She started slowly taking over my finances. She started like isolating me from my friends. She would be like, I don't feel jealous of your friends, but she was jealous of my friends. Like she wanted everything to be about her. And then lockdown happened. And I was trying to decide, like, do I want to go back to America? But then I'd have to leave this relationship. And we'd already decided to get married at this point because I was (laughs) stupid. Hindsight, stupid, not not foresight, stupid. I I just like felt like this was my only chance and I couldn't let this go because I don't meet very many people in the world who are bisexual or pansexual and okay with being with a transgender person and speak English and want to have kids. Like I've met lots of lesbian and bi women who don't want to have kids. And I understand that totally, but she wanted kids and she was like a few years younger. She was like maybe like seven or eight years younger, seven years younger than me, maybe. So I just really felt like this was it. I had to. And so I stuck with it. Things got worse. Things got more and more abusive. We had like a little marriage ceremony that we did privately for ourselves because, you know, during lockdown, like we couldn't get an actual marriage. We couldn't get, I mean, the embassies were shut down on none of the documents could be processed. Like there was no way to do that. From then on, she was just like, we're going to have a kid. We're going to have a baby. And I'm like, I'm not ready for a baby. I don't think we are ready for a baby. Like we don't have money. It's COVID. I would love to have a baby, but this is not the right time to have a baby. She wouldn't take no for an answer. You know, our sexual relationship started getting more and more coerced. Mm. And then it just started getting, sometimes it would just get flat out forced. Like, you know, saying no. And you know what that word is. There's obviously a lot of problems in the relationship. What happens? How does this sort of relationship? Because I know that this person is your ex. She gets pregnant. I had been tested and the doctor told me that it was virtually impossible that it was just not going to happen and it happened i know when it happened um it was actually on a night that i was trying to break up with her and it was like a coerced thing um it was not something that i think was uh at all healthy it was something that i would i would view looking back i would view it as um assault people always ask me like why would you stay with that person why would you be having a sexual relationship with that person knowing what they're mm-hmm. trying to do. And I would tell them like, you don't understand what it's like when someone that you care about is standing on the balcony of your apartment, telling right. you that she's mm-hmm. going to jump mm-hmm. because she's feels bad that you won't do this sexual thing for with her. So it was like this ma- manipulation of like taking all of my triggers and turning mm-hmm. them back on me, knowing that I had yeah. suicidal problems, you know, in the past, she knew that that was a trigger point for me. So she yeah. would turn it and use it. Does she run a cult now? <laughs> no, she does have the skill set for it. She, she tries to run businesses. Um, it's a fun story. Actually, after we have the baby and everything. You have the baby. Yeah. So she gives birth in Japan. Yeah. And you're still technically together. Yeah. And this is I'm not on the birth certificate, thanks to Japanese law being really fucked up. When is this? When does the child get born? What what, what, what month and year? Yeah, yeah, April 21. What point does she leave Japan? Like a year ago of this month. I don't know if I knew she left. I made an assumption. Good assumption. Are you with her until she leaves? So what happens is 
she's getting more and more abusive mm. and I can't deal with it anymore. I mean, she's not letting me go out anywhere. So I would like make up a story about like, I'm going to go to the convenience store and like use this as an excuse to be out for a while. And I would go to like the train tracks and sit on the bridge and like, just look out at the trains and think about jumping. Or I would like go up to the roof of our building. Cause there's like 11 floors. And I would go up to the roof and just sit there and like, try to be by myself. And while I was sitting there, I would just be looking off the edge and thinking like, I can end this because things are getting more and more bad. Not too long before that you had a long stretch of not feeling suicidal. Do you think in hindsight, that when she met you, she actually really was into you? Or was it just like, I'm going to manipulate another human being however I can to get pregnant or whatever the reasons were? I really don't know. My guess is that she got emotionally attached for her own reasons hmm. um, while also being in that mode at the same time. I think she was in both modes at the same time. I think she was like falling in love with me and also realizing she can totally control me and use me for what she wants. And maybe that kind of got mixed up in her head because it's a kind of an emotional high for a narcissist, I guess, to, to, to have that control. And maybe she equated that with love. I don't know. I can't speak for her. I can't really say. I can't. I'm not sure I can answer that question, to be honest. You don't kill yourself. You don't try in that way. You don't jump. Eventually she leaves. I know I'm sort of connecting things in yeah. something here with your child. You have a child who's now in Thailand? No. Where? <laughs> Where is this woman and your child? Uh, they're living with my mom. If there's a movie, this is where it starts. I think. Well, I'm not the director. Does that make her legal to stay in the States because she has a child with an American or whatever? Uh, no, she's trying to get a visa. So, okay. Yeah. So basically, instead of killing myself, I convinced her to allow me to get therapy. Um, which she helped me pay for because she thought that that would keep me with her. I got therapy and we would, I would have therapy like out of the home. So she couldn't hear. And we worked on a plan for me to get her out, which was to have her go visit my mom in America over Christmas break while I stayed here. And then while she was there, I told her that she was abusive and I couldn't deal with this anymore. And I didn't want to kill myself but I missed my son, but I don't want to be together with you. And so she was at my mom's house when that happened. So I felt like if I told her that while she was here, she might hurt me or she might take the baby and run to Thailand to, to kind of like hurt me. She definitely uses him as a tool for manipulation. A narcissist will probably use most things as a tool if they can. Yeah. And my mom kind of does that too. My mom kind of uses him as a tool for to manipulate me as well. Are they like best friends? These two? <laughs> like, kind of. She comes back after that vacation and she doesn't want to live with me. So she gets an apartment somewhere else that a friend helped her get. And she was there for like four months. But then what happened was her visa was about to run out. And instead of renewing it, instead of like trying to go get another job or being a student or any of the other ways that we could come up with to, to do it, she mm -hmm. manipulated things so that the only possible solution left was for her to try to go to America, which I think was her end goal to begin with. She'd already lived with my mom for like a couple months, you know, during that vacation. So she liked my mom and my mom loved the baby. So Ooh. mom was like, yeah, okay, you know what? She can stay if she wants, if, if that happens, you know, whatever. So she forced a situation where the only way I could keep her and the baby in America safe with my mom because I was worried about the baby. And that's the whole reason I did all of this stuff was because I was worried about him. And I'm still worried about him, but whatever, was to go with her during the summer break to help her get in at the airport or whatever. 
as a tourist. Mm-hmm. So she came in as a tourist, you know, with approval because we're together as a family. She, her plan was to apply for a visa, which meant getting married. So I'm broken up with her, but I also have to marry her so that my kid can stay with her in America. Now, my kid's an American citizen and not a Thai citizen, but she is not entitled to stay there unless, you know, she has a visa and, she, you know, we're married and she applies for a marriage visa. I had to go to the justice of the peace or whatever it is and get a marriage, which I literally fucking dissociated. I I dissociate a lot. I've learned when I have mental images of things, traumatic things that have happened to me. They're always third person in my mind. I never have a first person view of these things. Mm. I can only see them like a movie shot from Mm. exterior. I can see myself in that shot, but I can't, I can't see it through my own eyes. This wedding is like that. I was there for like a month. My mom's house is kind of small. There's two bedrooms, her bedroom and my bedroom. And there's a big couch in the living room. And my mom has known all of this stuff because I actually had a session with my mom and the therapist together and explained to her all about the sexual abuse and the all this stuff that had happened. Knowing all of that, mm. I went to sleep on the couch the first night. And my mom came out the next day and was like, did you sleep on the couch? And I was like, yeah, that night I went to go sleep on the couch. And she's like, don't sleep on my couch. I don't want you to sleep on my couch. My, I don't want my couch to get messed up. And I'm like, where am I going to sleep? She's like, well, sleep in your bedroom. My ex and baby are sleeping in there. And, you know, and she's like, well, sleep with them. Um, you remember we talked to you about like the sexual abuse and the, it's hard to say, but I'll say it, the, the rape. I don't want to sleep with her. And she's like, well, you've slept with her before because I, I had to sleep with her once or twice when I went to visit her where she was staying um, because there was no place to sleep. I didn't like it, but I had to. And so she's like, well, you can do it again. Just sleep there. And I'm like, I want to sleep on the couch. And she's like, well, I don't want you to mess up my couch. It's a nice couch and the cushions get all rumpled and everything. And I don't know. She was trying to like force us back together or whatever. Mom. So for that whole month, I had to sleep in the same bed with my abuser. Wow. I'm still angry about that. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) My mom also forced me to go see my dad. Mm. She was like, your dad has not seen you in all these years and you got his baby and they want to see the baby and they want to meet her. And I'm like, we're not together. And she's like, yeah, but they don't know that, you know, and they just want to see the baby. So you got to go. And I'm like, I don't want to. And she's like, but you need to go. And I'm like, "Uh," you know, I'm hemming and hawing. I'm trying to say like, I don't want to go. I didn't say, look, bitch, I don't want to fucking go. Why not? Because I'm scared of conflict because I've been hurt by conflict so much in my life. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it totally makes sense. And it's funny, too, because later on, I had this conversation with her about how traumatic it was going to my dad's house and how it brought all of that PTSD stuff back to life, all that childhood events. Those things went from being closed off, forgotten parts of my life to alive hurtful parts of my life and i told her that this is like a few months after i left and came back to japan which is where the next sort of suicide stuff starts to begin and really has been going on since and she's just kind of like well why didn't you tell me no and i'm like i told you no a bunch of times and she was like why don't you just like yell at me and be like no i'm not going and i'm like because you won't listen to me and because i'm afraid of this conflict and she's like oh well i never thought about it like that when was that conversation like October of last year. For the past almost a year, you've been more or less suicidal. Yeah. And I obviously know that you looked for a podcast around suicide recently. Yeah. That's how we connected. 
which is less than a year after you coming back and what, from what you just shared. I'm going to do something that I do with everybody right now, which is short answers. You ready? Mm-hmm. Why did you reach out? Talking helps. Being <laughs> heard helps even more. Super short. Okay. How many people know that we're talking right now? Two people know that we're talking and know what it is we're talking about. Got and it. like two or three people know that I'm just talking to someone. One is a is a trans friend who lives near me that we hang out a lot. And one is my friend from Winston-Salem area who I've known for like 15 plus years. And he's my best friend in the world, honestly. Awesome. 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 How many people in the world know about the attempts? I would say a lot of people because I do talk a lot in order to try and uh, get some sort of release or be heard. I think it's really just about being heard. But ironically, none of the people that need to hear it will listen. My mom, my dad, um, my ex. God, that is so fucking frustrating. Yeah. Do you ever wish, and if you've heard the podcast, these probably aren't Mm -hmm. huge surprise questions, but do you ever wish that you had died earlier in your life? Uh, I wish I'd taken the pills. Uh, looking back on the last, whatever it is, 25 years from that time to now, aside from having tons of video games and some fun for those five years, none of it has really been worth living for in a lot of ways. Get made it yeah. to Japan. That's cool. But now I wish I was dead. And you teach children? Yeah, I teach junior high school kids. That actually is one of the things that really does keep me going is is being able to like be there for kids that might need me. Yeah. Um, right now I'm actually working, I'm working at two schools and one of them I'm working part-time in like a reform school for kids that have been taken away from their families. That is like really powerful for me. I know what that feels like for, in a lot of ways, um, maybe not perfectly, but I've been thinking about this question a lot because I hear it come up in your podcast. The conclusion that I came to was, yeah. I appreciate the honesty. I typically ask a question around like, do you have people to talk to or talk with about difficult things? But I want to up the ante a little bit. You're feeling suicidal. You have anyone you can talk to safely. Yeah, I guess I have one person, that friend back from America. My my local friend tries to help and she does mm-hmm. okay, but she she's not always like perfect at it. She she truly really tries and that's fine. But most of my other local friends don't want to talk about it anymore. They're kind of burned out on hearing me open yeah. up and they're not good at listening. And they're just kind of like, look, I'd love to help you and I'd love to support you, but I can't and I'm not going to change myself to just like shut up and listen. So maybe you should just stop talking. And I'm like, okay, cool. That that might not get me. That might get me killed, but whatever. Because I mean, I, I love these people. Like these are some of my friends. They have no framework around the ability to talk about these things without sharing their opinions that are not helpful opinions. Yeah. What, if anything, helps? Talking, as I've mentioned, and, and being listened to. Mm-hmm. Really just being listened to because I can talk all day long and it won't matter. But mm-hmm. listening, being listened to, smoking. I started smoking like six months ago. Wait, wait, wait. This is so interesting because there's somebody <laughs> I just started. I just had a conversation with. Oh, Elizabeth okay. in Washington. You just started smoking. So I love the fact that you just started smoking. <laughs> smoke a cigarette. It feels better. Great. I get it. I used to smoke for years. It's, mm. it's something about it. Yeah, definitely. Eating. But I can't do that because I have a kind of a binge eating disorder. I, I It's something that I've learned that I do because of trauma-related response. Um, so I'm trying really hard to lose weight, and I'm not very good at it. I've only lost weight once in my life when I had kind of a health crisis. Um, that was like five years ago. And then I re- ended up regaining it all when I met my ex. So really, it's like talking, 
playing games, actually like absorbing media around queerness and around depression and around suicide really does kind of help. It sounds counterintuitive, but surrounding myself with suicide actually makes it easier to like not feel like suicide is just some horrible thing that's just going to happen. And it's just like, whatever. You're 40. Yep. Let's use 44. For some reason, that's the magic number today. You're going to make it. Will you be alive for 44? When I was 19, 18, 19, I really did not think I was going to make it to 20. I didn't think I was going to make it to 20. And when I turned 20, I was so shocked that I actually was still alive that I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to make it to 30. And so I actually came up with this plan. I was talking to someone and I came up with this plan. We were going to do it together. We had decided that if we both made it to 30, that we were going to kill ourselves. I couldn't imagine continuing on past 30. So when I did turn 30, I was in Japan in that like kind of that good moment and so i kind of forgot about it and then sometime right around turning 30 i was like oh yeah i did say that didn't i and i thought well i guess i'm doing better so maybe not maybe i'll just keep going and then i got to 40 and it was like how in the world did i make it this far i should just be dead i mean like in terms of what i've been through i probably should not be alive and so going forward i don't know so something's going to have to change for me to be alive at 44. Either I'm going to have to leave Japan or I'm going to have to get a new job, which is not looking like it's going to happen. What do you mean? Or I'm going to have to end myself. What, what do you mean a new job, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen? So so basically, it's it's right now the job market is really, really tight for foreigners. My visa, I can only do teaching. So I would have to like apply for a new visa if I was going to do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, but the teaching market is just like super dead. Like it's just Mm -hmm. really, everything is really tight and it's hard to find another job, but the private company that I work for now, I'm getting like half the money that I used to make, um, when I was on jet, I was looking at it yesterday and like, based on what the current U S exchange rate is, which is not that great, 140 yen to a dollar. So imagine uh, every dollar you own being worth like 40% less or something like that. I don't know. I can't do math. I'm making like $1,300 a month. Um, It fluctuates around like $1,300, $1,500. When my ex was living here, there was this expectation that we were going to be sharing all the bills. That didn't happen. She dumped all of her money into her business schemes, which never panned out really. For a while, she was making good money, but then she would just keep reinvesting it into her stuff over and over again and not paying the bills, not helping me at all. What really changed was like last year, they changed where our healthcare and pension are now done through the company and are included in our salary instead of being on the national healthcare and pension. So the cost of that went up and it's taken out of our paycheck automatically. So you can't like dodge it. You can't like not pay your pension or whatever like you used to be able to. I went from making like $1,700 a month to making like $1,300, $1,400 a month. And the cost of living is higher because I'm in an apartment that's really like a two-person or even small family-sized apartment, but I'm by myself. It's brutally expensive to move in Japan. Like mm-hmm. it would cost me around probably three to $4,000 just to move into another apartment up front, um, which I can't do. The money's extremely tight. I'm not making enough to survive. I'm selling things to get by. I'm probably going to go sell some more games or something, cards, I don't know what, to go, you know, be able to pay my bills. And I'm running out of things to sell. I'm going to start getting into the stuff where it really, really, really hurts to sell it. So where would you go if you couldn't stay there? 
Well, if I didn't get another job, I would have to go somewhere in America. Ideally, I would want to go to some place that's going to be, you know, like a trans-friendly, you know, safe state. North Carolina is not, I mean, North Carolina is like not, not, not the worst yet, but it's very quickly going to be. I think it's going to be one of the bad ones soon. There's a map of all the different states and North Carolina is in the, like the danger zone of like flipping mm-hmm. into. Next year, there's probably going to be a ton of new laws that are going to make it impossible for me to live in North Carolina. Yeah. But that's where people that I know are. So that's my only support like network. So I don't really know what I would do. Like I've been reaching out to a few people online that I know and being like, you know, Hey, if you ever find something in your area in like a safe state, let me know. But like, I really don't know. I I can't really afford to move. I can't really afford to not work. I can't get a new job. You're so primed to do something online. Yeah. But you have to have the visa. That's the thing. Like you have to maintain the visa. Well, wherever you are, you can make money online. I'm not saying. Well, that's true. Before you kill yourself. Well, I'm not I'm not so worried about like making money if I were to go to America. I think I could do that. But making money here is a lot harder um, because I do have so many restrictions on what I'm allowed to do. Fucking America is expensive. My last question. And then, of course, you can add anything you want is um, biggest myth around any of this stuff. One that I just thought of is that when we're talking about both suicide and being transgender, I think it's really important to realize that we are not here to hurt you so of course in america right now especially there's this whole like thing of like this moral panic of like we have to be afraid of these transgender people because they're going to go into math rooms or someone's going to dress up like a transgender person and go into a bathroom and molest some woman or whatever despite the fact that i've gotten molested way 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 more than a lot of my friends there's just like this idea that transgenders are out to get you they have this agenda and we're gonna hurt you and it's like I find it funny they, you know, being like that, that part of society is telling everyone that we're out to hurt them and that we're the problem when we're the victim. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's actually the exact same thing that goes on with suicide. I was listening to you talk with several different people because I've been listening to the podcast a lot. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that keeps coming up is that people go to the hospitals and the response is not just we're going to punish you. But we're going to separate you from everyone else that you know and you care about who can help you to protect them. I'm not trying to kill them. I'm trying to kill me. Why do they need protecting? They're not the victim here. They're not the person who's struggling with this. So why should we target them? And it's the same thing with both. It's always it's like victim shaming and and shifting blame. And then also the selfishness thing. I've heard a lot of different opinions on your podcast about is it selfish? Is it not selfish? I think it can be absolutely both at the same time. And I think both of those are really, really valid because like, I don't think it's selfish to be to be in so much pain that you can't keep going on to outweigh those things from what pain you might cause to your family or whatever. Like, is that selfish? Yeah, probably. Is it also not selfish yeah probably like someone was saying how they feel like killing themselves would actually be a benefit to their family because they wouldn't have to deal with that anymore and i feel that way with my own child my friend has been saying like why don't you just go you know go to america bust down doors take your custody of your kid get your ex deported because you can just like file for a divorce and then she's gone and i'm like you know all that sounds fantastic but what do I do? What what happens if I'm, you know, he turns like five or six or 10 and he has to find my body because, you know, something else happened that I couldn't make it. I couldn't deal. I don't know if that's better for him. Is it better for him to just be with my mom 
and my ex. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is. At least it's more, you know, financially secure and that kind of thing. I'm actually thinking about them. My mom always, when I try to get her to use my name, uh, Michelle, she won't use it has all these tricks to get around using it. And I, I, I kind of out and out told her how, look, this is going to help my mental health. Oh, for the record, I should explain. I haven't spoken to my mom or my ex in four months. Um, and this is one of the last things that happened before that. I told her like, this would actually help my physical, my mental health. I am struggling with feelings of like, you know, really bad. I didn't say like, I'm going to kill myself, but I'm like, I am really struggling with feeling like maybe I'm not going to be here much longer, you know, whatever, however I worded it. And I said, like, one of the things that could really, really help is just knowing that you support me and using my name, calling me my name would be extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, you just don't ever think about my feelings. You don't know, think about how I feel. You don't think about how much this hurts me. Like I've lost my son and that really hurts me. And I'm like, mom, I came out to you 23 years ago. And then I've come out to you three more times since then. You've had plenty of time to get over this feeling of grief. I'm here. You could lose me forever. The real me. Or you could just like get still stuck on this other thing, which is really more important. And so what I realized was that like, I'm not being selfish. I'm actually trying to protect her from the feeling that she's going to have when I'm gone and she's going to know that she helped it. I don't want her to have to suffer that, but she doesn't see it that way. She doesn't know that I'm trying to help her. She thinks I'm trying to hurt her. So the selfish thing is really, it's a tough one because- I don't think people are ever really always being that. So some people are selfish, but a lot of people are just trying to help in a way that's completely unhelpful. And they don't yeah. know that. As you think about the possibility of ending your life, have you come up with another method? Uh, yeah, um, I thought about that a lot. Um, my problem is, is that I can't think of one here. <laughs> There's no guns. I don't have a car. I don't have any access to any medication. They're really strict on medication here. They don't really have very many strong painkillers at all in this country. I haven't found a method that would fulfill those criteria and heaven help me if I ever find it because I might use it. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to. What I want is to magically have someone start giving me an extra thousand dollars a month so I can get all my bills paid and have the laser hair removal that I need and um, survive. I want to be surrounded with a few more friends. That is literally all it would take to change my life. My mental health problems would mostly clear up. I would still have all these past struggles and that kind of thing, but I could move forward if there was a path forward. Yeah. Right now, it doesn't feel like there is one. And you've been trying for a long time. Long ass time. And in that time, were you diagnosed with anything that you agree with? So I've been diagnosed with ADHD and major depressive disorder, possibly borderline. The ADHD was diagnosed when I was like 14 and I never got any treatment for it. My dad thought it was all bullshit. So he didn't want to help me get the medicine. So I've never had medication for that. I'm actually trying to see a doctor here and see if I can get something, but it's really hard to get that stuff here because they're really restrictive on that kind of medication. The others, the major depressive and potentially borderline were done when I was being forced to leave college that first time in like 2001. The borderline, you know, I've researched it and I don't think so. For me, I would say probably ADHD, childhood PTSD. I don't know, maybe the major depressive. It's hard to say. I do have, what do you call it? uh, Intrusive suicidal thoughts. I didn't have them for that five years. So maybe it's situational and maybe it's chemical. I really don't know. And binge eating disorder, I think is a problem for me. Michelle in Japan, what else would you like to share before we 
go back to our, let us call them, insert adjective lives. You know, I'm really hurt sometimes by people's attitudes towards suicide, especially people who just think they know better and they're going to tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Uh, I apologize to this friend, but he's not going to hear this anyway, so whatever. But I have this friend who, after months of hearing me talk on and on about, you know, how I felt and when I needed help, he just finally decided to tell me outright that he believes that everyone who is suicidal is deeply confused, that he cannot and will not listen, that shutting up is not something that he can do, and that his brain will not allow him to because he's right and everyone else is wrong, and he knows that's how his brain functions. And that just made me so angry. Like, where the fuck do you get off telling people what's going on inside their minds, what they're dealing with, when you have no clue and have never even felt this kind of struggle at all in your life by your own admission, never dealt with trauma or depression or suicidal thoughts, and you're going to tell me that I'm confused? Like, bro, you are confused. Because you think you know better than all the world about something you've never even experienced? Just shut your fucking mouth and open your ears, please. So I don't talk to him about problems anymore. You know, I think the biggest thing that I've learned from listening to this podcast for a while now, because I've listened to, I don't know, 60 episodes or so, is that society is the problem. Like They're always going around telling us that we're the problem, but it's society, right? It's the hospitals, it's the healthcare system, it's the doctors, it's the law enforcement, it's our friends and family, it's religion, it's all these different things that are telling us, hey, look, we know that you're out there hurting, but what you're hurting over and what you want to do is wrong, therefore we have to punish you for being hurt and needing help. And it's just got to stop. Like You just cannot keep on going, punishing people for needing help Unless you just want them to die. And that's what it comes down to, right? Is that sometimes it just feels like society just wants us to die so that we're not a burden on them anymore. And that's the number one thing that I've taken away from hearing everyone talk about this, including myself, is that we are society's burden. I don't mean to sound whatever, but I have to be really thankful for this podcast because... I really know that I feel better. I mean, sometimes it makes me feel a little bit more about suicide and I think about it a little bit more. But at the same time, I also feel a lot better surrounding Mm -hmm. myself with it in ways that are not psychobabble therapy bullshit. Mm -hmm. I love therapy. I had a great therapist. I can no longer afford that therapist. So I'm not with that therapist anymore. For me, I don't have therapy anymore. If I had therapy, I would probably not be in this situation, to be honest. And that's why like thousand dollars would help because part of that thousand dollars a month could go to therapy every month. Something like this podcast. What's so important about it is that it's just fucking real. I can just sit here and just like curse and tell stories and, and, and share how I'm feeling. And nobody's going to say like, well, no, you can't use that word around here or we don't like that terminology or maybe you should reframe that. <laughs> nah, I don't have to deal with any of that. And right. I don't have to fear fear that someone's going to send me to a hospital for being on this show. Do you know? not have that power, nor would I use it. Thank God, because yeah, yeah, yeah. if if that if I were to get sent to a hospital in Japan, it would be the end. I would be I would have to leave the country. My job would probably just outright fire me or put me on temporary leave and then not renew my contract. 
So yeah. it would it would be devastating to be in a hospital. So having a podcast like this where I can just hear other people just being really fucking honest and me now be really fucking honest is one of those things that I crave. And being heard is it just helps. It just yeah. helps. So that's my that's my last thought, I guess. I, yeah, I appreciate it. Sure. I appreciate you joining me and talking. We should add before we go, you're going to probably share this with your family, right? I feel like there's going to be kind of a reckoning within my family when this comes out. Like I'm actually a little bit nervous about it because I'm going to send it to them. And I don't know what that will mean for my relationships with them. I I think there's been a, a lot of denial within my family. People saying in their heads things like, but I never sexually abused them or I didn't punch or kick anybody. I didn't leave bruises. So it must not be actual physical abuse, right? But when all this comes out, I think some people are really going to push hard to shift the blame back onto me and just say that I'm crazy or some insane transgender person, woke agenda, psychology, bullshit, something or other. And they don't want to listen. They don't want to accept blame. But I really hope they listen. I hope that when they turn on their Fox News and see more about the evil trans agenda, they realize that that's me. That's their girl. Not some evil conspiracy. Just a daughter who has always tried her hardest to be kind and loving to everyone around her, even if it meant getting hurt to the point of suicide, and she's just not going to let that be the status quo anymore. It can't be. This relationship can't go on this way, and it's going to have to end if they refuse to change, which I don't know if they even can change, no matter what that costs for my relationships with my family, because it might caused the end of my ability to see my child. You know, I might not get to see him for a long, long time because of this. But, you know, it's that or put myself at risk of suicide again. And I'm not sure I want to take that risk. Makes sense. Well, listen, thank you very, very much. Land of the Rising Sun, I believe. Do I dare say sayonara here? Just say like matane. Yeah, because that's more of like a see you later. All right. I hope your days are decent, and uh, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll connect soon. (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Michelle. We'll talk soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Michelle out in Japan. Thanks, Michelle. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Check the show notes to learn about all kinds of other things, including our membership. We'd love to have you on board there. And if you have a moment, rate and review Suicide Noted on the Apple podcast platform. It helps people find it, and we do want more people to find it so that hopefully we can help people feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And that is all for episode number 182. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.